0: Wow. Amen. Uh, Kids, if there are any kids in here, nine and under, who would like to uh, go into the back for a time of children's worship, now's a a good time. Or stay here and participate in this worship because we expect it to be a good time too. So, uh, while our kids start to move back there, if you would, turn now into God's Word. Turn to uh, the book of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 22, and we're going to look at uh, uh, what I think is one of the most sacred of all passages. Um, this verse is uh, 39 through 46, if you would turn there. And as you're turning there, uh, I want to open us up with a couple of, couple of other thoughts and a couple of other passages. And this first this, this that I want us to look at is an excerpt. Of a poem written in 1822 by a man by the names of by the name of James Montgomery, and the poem is "Christ Our Example in Suffering." And I think this verse from this poem profoundly frames my desire for us this morning, which is also why the title of this poem is the title for this this sermon. It says, "Go." To dark Gethsemane, ye that feel the tempter's power, your Redeemer's conflict see. Watch with him one bitter hour, turn not from his griefs away. Learn of Jesus Christ to pray. As we look to the experience of Christ during this time in the Garden of Gethsemane, That is my desire for us today, that we learn of him how to suffer. That we follow his example and we learn of him how to pray. Another passage I want us to look at is from 1 Peter chapter 2, number 21. You don't have to turn there, it should be on the screen. For to to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Again, that is my prayer for us this morning, that we will look to Christ, that we will look to our Holy Lord, and that we will see and learn by his example how to endure suffering and testing in our lives. So now let's look at our our passage in Luke. Twenty two thirty nine through 46, and it says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him, and when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done." back to the beginning, starting with verse 39. And he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Let me set the scene for you a little bit. If you've, if you've been following along, if you've been here week in and week out as we've progressed through the book of Luke, you probably can recall some of the scene of what's going on. But uh, I'm going to set it for you now. Anyway, there's a great contrast going on here that a lot of times we don't recognize. We're so focused on what Jesus is, is going through and what the disciples are going through. We kind of lose the contrast of what's going on in the whole world around them. Because, because in the middle, you've got this, this joyous revelry that's happening all around them. This, there's, the, the city is in the midst of a festival. It's the Passover. And in the middle of that, in the middle of this revelry, we have this, this, the sadness of this little company. Of all that Jesus proclaimed to them in the upper room. Because then when it says, when this verse starts, and he came out. Came out from where? The upper room. That's where they had just been. That's the encounter just prior to this. He came out of the upper room. And, 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 and the timing of all of this, it's late Thursday nights, probably more like early Friday. And and He must die. Friday afternoon, between the hours of three and five. Because that is the time when the Passover lambs are being slain. So the Passover supper has been eaten. And Jesus had a long time of teaching as recorded in in John, in the Gospel of John. We see a lot of that that teaching really spelled out for us, including what's called his high priestly prayer prayer. For his disciples, we see that in chapter seventeen of the book of John, and they sang Psalm 118, which is the last song of the Hillel, which was which was always the way the Jews closed Passover. And they left. And they went out. And he came out. And having left, what this verse tells us is they did what they had done every other night that week, and they went right to the Mount of Olives. That's why it says that they proceeded as was his custom. This time of year, springtime, this was a time where, where you could stay in, 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 on the Mount of Olives. You could stay in the garden there at night. You could find a, a comfortable place among the olive trees to, to rest and to sleep. And probably even more important to him at that time or leading up to this time is this was a place where you could hide, this is a place where you wouldn't be found. Because people were looking for him and he did not want to be found until he was ready to be found. But on this night, Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. Yet he still returns to this place where he had been spending his nights he refused to alter his routine even though he knew that it meant Judas would easily find him, that Judas would lead the Romans to him. But there was no need to hide any longer because it was time. Verse 40 tells us that they had come to the place And then they enter this intense time of testing for both Jesus and his disciples. And we know this as we look at this passage. We know this because he begins and ends this passage by telling his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now the word temptation here is a word that's used for testing. It's a word that means discovering the nature of someone, discovering the nature of something. That's that's what he's talking about here. Jesus and his disciples are going through a severe period of suffering and testing together and he emphasizes to them the need to pray during this period of severe trial. I mean, this is... This is it, man. This is when we find out what Jesus and the disciples are made of. Because the consequences of this moment are huge. There's a lot at stake, to say the least. Because if Jesus doesn't pass this test, everything falls apart. So what we're seeing here in this moment in the garden is huge. So here's the question. If, 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 if Christ, our example in suffering, if he is our example in suffering, why is this necessary? As we see an in indication at the end of this passage, because we learn that we, like the disciples, cannot pass the test. We can't we don't. We fail the test. They failed the test. I know they were under a lot of stress, to say the least. Jesus has told them, think of all the things that he had told them up there in the upper room. He had already told them that he was going to be betrayed by one of them. He had already turned to Peter and told him that he was going to deny him. You know, they had entered entered the city, man. They were, it was the triumphal entry. They were thinking all this was about to really take off for them. They know that tensions are swirling around Jesus and his ministry and around them. They know they're hunted. And Jesus gives them one thing to do. He tells them one thing to do, to pray. And he even tells them what to pray. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. He's basically telling them to pray for an exemption from the test. And they fail. And so do we, because we are incapable of passing this test on our own. But what our gracious Lord does for us is instruct us here by his own example and by his own words about how we are to face this time of temptation and this time of testing and how his disciples were to face theirs. So let's look at his prayer and see what I believe are four marks of Christ's example in suffering that we need to understand and that we need to follow, all right? The first one, the first mark is anticipation. So still looking at verse 40, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray that you may not literally be overwhelmed by temptation or that temptation would be successful over you. Jesus knew he was temptable. but he was without sin, yet he was temptable in all points, just like we are. In fact, the temptation that came to him was so intense, was so powerful, that it almost killed him here in this garden at this time. In the account of this night in Matthew, Matthew and Mark go much deeper in explaining some of the, the aspects around this night, but in Matthew 26, 38, Jesus says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death death he is struggling here to such a degree that he's on the brink of death but it's not for the same reason that we struggle with temptation his struggle is not like our struggle okay and I want us to understand that because here's the big difference we are sinners for us we struggle with temptation because of our sinful, prideful, lustful flesh. This was not Christ's struggle. He struggled because of his holy flesh. We have to fight against sinful impulses and embrace holiness. He's fighting against holy impulses to be made sin. It's the exact opposite. Satan is tempting him to cling to holiness. You don't have to do this. These people don't owe you anything. You're the son of God. Why do you want to do this? We fight to hold on to God. He's fighting to let go of God. For you, for me. And at the same time that he's here and he's, he's fully focusing on this enormous struggle that he's going through, he's thinking about the disciples. He's still thinking about and ministering to them his own friends, who are struggling that same night with their own temptations. And he's trying to help them be ready. He makes himself ready by prayer, and he knows they need to do do the same. That's why he tells them, pray. So the lesson is clear. Christ goes to his temptation, and they go to theirs. And everyone needs to pray. That's what he's saying in all this. You have got to anticipate temptation and be ready with prayer. That's what he's telling them and that's the anticipation that we have to have. A prayer that confesses pride, that confesses sin and weakness and inability, that confesses a lack of strength. Humble, meek prayer. So anticipation is, is the first mark I think we see here of following Christ's example in suffering, of praying in the face of temptation. Don't get caught when the test hits you with its full force with not having prayed. The second mark of following in Christ's example in suffering is affliction. 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 Jesus exemplifies for us here in such powerful terms that one who prays honestly and earnestly in the face of temptation feels great affliction. There is agony in legitimate prayer. And for Luke, it's enough to say here in verse 41 that he withdrew about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Now Luke's pretty abbreviated here, but this is where we come face to face with his affliction and where we begin to really consider the severity of that. And you might not see it at first, because for us, kneeling in prayer is pretty common. I mean, many of us, I think, are probably taught as, as little kids. To, at night, when you say your prayers, you kneel beside your bed and you pray. This is a passionate account of an eyewitness. You know, Jesus had only gone about a stone's throw away from, from, from those three disciples. And, this is, and, and, and so, recounting this, whoever recounted this to Luke, this is a passionate telling of this. It's passionate because the usual posture of prayer in Jesus' time was standing. That Jesus knelt shows the violence of his struggle here in the garden. In fact, it's punctuated even more back in Matthew when Matthew says he fell with his face to the ground. And then in Hebrew, when recounting this night, it says when he fell with his face to the ground, he fell with strong crying and tears. This is not a bedtime prayer. What you have here is the Lord Jesus first falling to his knees, then lying flat on the ground on his face, crying out loud in the agony of this struggle. This is the man of sorrows at his most sorrowful moment. And what was tearing him up was the realization of the coming wrath of his own Father falling on him. This is more than he can bear physically. So he is on the ground crying at the top of his voice. So the example in suffering that we see here is that if you're going to triumph over temptation, you must hate it. You must feel afflicted by it. You must feel the pain of it and the assault of it and the repulsiveness of it. There needs to be an agonizing in prayer because you love holiness and you hate sin. There must be anticipation and there must be affliction. The third mark in following Christ's example that we see here is there must be submission. Verse 42, look at that. When he began to pray, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. What a tremendous and agonizing prayer. But also, what a beautiful prayer. Because this prayer is truly the Lord's prayer. And it is the perfect pattern for our own. Look at the grasp of God's fatherhood. Which is both, at the same time, it's both an appeal and a submission to his will. This is how all of our prayers should begin. In First John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, it says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. You plead to know the will of God. And then to do the will of God. This is foundational in prayer. And it is so with Jesus. As he exemplifies for us here. And then look at his desire that God the Father should remove this cup from me. That admission, that expression right there shows how vividly, Christ saw the impending sufferings, and it tells us he knows why he was in such dread. Why is the cup such a dreaded thing? Let's look at some passages. Psalm 75, 8 says, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah fifty-one seventeen says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah 25, 15 and 16 says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword I am sending among them. And then in Revelation, and another angel a third followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or in his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This cup is the furious, and righteous wrath of God in all its fullness against sin, and Jesus knew that he was about to receive it in full on himself. So, yes, he shrank from his sufferings. But does that mean that he faltered even a little bit in his desire and resolve to endure the cross? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because if Jesus had not felt the cross to be a dread, it wouldn't be much of a sacrifice, would it? And if he had allowed that dread to penetrate to his will, then he would have been no savior either. Jesus drank that cup at Calvary, but he decided once and for all to drink it here in the garden at Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. The submission to God's will, this is not just some simple, well, okay, Father, if it must be so, then okay, let it be so. But he receives in his prayer, in this supplication to God, the true answer for his will completely coincides with the Father's. And mine is thine. Such conformity of our wills with God's is the highest blessing of prayer and true deliverance. Because though our flesh may shrink, the inner self consents. And in consenting to the pain, conquers it. Whatever that pain is in your life, whatever it is that you're suffering. What marks his prayer, an example in suffering, is anticipation of testing, affliction in the horrors of sin, and submission. To the will of God, those must mark ours too. There's a fourth mark that we see here, and it's invigoration. Verse forty-three says, "And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him." Luke alone. tells of this ministering angel. And through the telling of this reveals to us, I think, the utter physical torment of Jesus. It teaches us that the manhood of Jesus needed the strengthening of the divine help as truly as we do. It teaches that the true answer to his prayer and to ours is the strength to bear the load, not the removal of it. This word strengthened is found one more time in the New Testament in Acts 9.19 where Paul was said to be strengthened after taking some food after his three-day fast. And, and, and here it's, it's, it's evident of that Paul's strengthening was physical in nature it would seem that our Lord's strengthening was also physical. But why would Jesus have needed physical strengthening here in the garden? Remember that in Matthew and also in Mark, they both tell us that Jesus was sorrowful to the point of death. i take that very literally when i read that i think that's 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 literal i believe his sorrow was so great that he was virtually at the point of death in this encounter in the garden i believe that apart from this this supernatural sustenance brought by this angel from heaven that jesus could have died in that garden So great was his agony, not because he would be forsaken by men, but that he would be forsaken and smitten by God. His suffering was not merely him in his humanity struggling with the ugly realities of the cross. It was a supernatural suffering. It was the unique, unparalleled suffering of the sinless Son of God who alone could fathom the depths of God's righteousness, of man's sin, and the measure of divine wrath which these required and that he was taking on. How beautiful is this? In response to Jesus' prayer, The father didn't take the cup from him, but he invigorated him. He strengthened him to be able to take it and drink it for you and for me and for all. In this, in this invigoration, in this strengthening, Jesus continued... (laughs) It didn't get easier. As Luke tells us, in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He can't pray any harder. He can't pray any stronger. He is praying to the limits of his own capability and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling on the ground. He is, he is praying in such extremity. The anguish is so profound that the torture of the temptation to let go of his holy rights and to be made sin for us motivates him to pray so passionately that literally his body begins to show the effects. The drops of blood in his sweat suggest a very, very dangerous condition known as hematidrosis. This is the mixing of blood in one's perspiration caused by extreme anguish and physical pain. When blood vessels dilate and they burst, mingling blood with sweat. He is striving so hard with such agony in this prayer that he starts to shed blood. But then finally, in verse 45, it's like the master of understatement, this Luke because this is no there is no big statement of triumph here he simply says he rose from prayer but that's all he needs to say it's over satan had given it his best shot he had tried to keep jesus from the cross But Christ accepted the cup. (laughs) And then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. Yes, they should have been praying. They, like we, should have been following his example. If he needed to pray, how much more did they need to pray? But Luke tells us they're not praying just because they were sleepy. They're not praying because they were tired or because it was late and they had had a long night and got a full belly at the Lord's Supper. They were sleeping for sorrow. They were worn out by the sheer force of sadness of what they were seeing. And from their perspective, remember, they came into this thinking, Victory, triumph, they were, they, were, they were all messed up. They had a totally, totally different perspective of what the victory was going to be. And from their perspective, they were seeing total collapse. The wheels are falling off. What's there to pray for? We've lost. But when we look to Christ's example in suffering... We find what all this this really means. Because what it really means is that Jesus has won the victory. He passed the test where we fail, where they failed. He defeated the prince of hell. He knew it was either him or us, and he took what should have been ours. He was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him and he will triumph over death and he will burst out of the grave to be exalted to the right hand of the Father as the King of kings and the Lord of lords forever. The last temptation is done. The cup is in his hand and he's about to drink it. And his hand is steady. It is not trembling. No wonder Philip Bliss wrote these words. Man of sorrows. What a name. For the Son of God Who came ruined sinners to reclaim? Hallelujah! What a savior! Bow with me in prayer, Father God.